At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Confession is a necessary habit to have in our walk with Christ. It's something that can be uncomfortable or bring up feelings of guilt and shame. Even though we may be hesitant to confess our sins, He reminds us in His Word how vital confession is to our relationship with Him. In Psalm 51, David comes in full surrender, bringing his sin, shame, and guilt to God, asking for a renewed spirit and a cleansed heart. Join us in a new series titled, Confessions, Erasing Shame and Experiencing Renewal, where we'll learn why practicing confession is so important. You know, having four kids has been quite the journey. <laughs> Some of you know that journey all too well. You know, that journey has taught me uh, quite a bit. And one of the things that I've learned, it's been this trend that I've, that I've learned, uh, particularly in the younger kids, is that kids have this uncanny ability to watch the same movie a ridiculously consecutive amount of days. Perhaps some of you have, have, have noticed that. I mean, I think about some of my favorite movies, um, The Breakfast Club from the 1980s, maybe some of you know about that, or uh, the original Willy Wonka uh, featuring Gene Wilder. Some of you are saying, Brandon, can you give us a movie from the 21st century? But what can I say? This is... I'm an old soul at, at heart. But you know, uh, on the, the umpteenth time that uh, my dear daughter, uh, Brayland, is probably somewhere singing Let It Go right now in the nursery, uh, in, the, in, the, in the kids' ministry, for the umpteenth time that she was watching that, that doggone movie Frozen, um, you know, a particular theme started to pop out to me that I hadn't perceived earlier uh, when, I, when I was listening and watching it. And that's the theme of shame. You see, you probably remember the movie. In the movie, you have these two sisters, Elsa and Anna, and they live in this castle. And Elsa is the older of the two, and Elsa has this, this, this power, this ability to shoot ice and cold out of her hands. Now, of course, she didn't know quite how to handle it, and it would kind of come out dependent upon her mood or whatever her emotional state was. And when they were children, playing as, as children do, she accidentally harmed her younger sister, Anna, with those powers. And understandably, like her parents, and, and, and particularly her father, they were concerned that, that Anna got hurt. Now, Anna was okay, but her father told her, don't use those powers. Hide them. Conceal them. Make sure no one knows that you have these powers. But these powers were a part of who Elsa was. And that caused her to go, into, to, to, to go into seclusion and feel a bit of depression. Elsa became shrouded, shrouded in shame. One person reflecting on this theme in Frozen said, her well-meaning father makes the very dangerous and typical mistake of confusing control with repression. He gives her gloves to, to cover her hands. And instead of accepting and playing with her power and perhaps growing in control through trial and error, she is learning to repress and to hide it. And her father gives her the mantra, conceal it, don't feel it, don't let it show, which of course is why later she sings, let it go. But my friends, that is the recipe for shame. You see, shame thrives. It thrives on secrecy. 
Now, I don't think I'm, I'm overreaching by assuming that every single person in this room today has dealt with shame in some way, shape, or form. Many of us have gone through multiple seasons of shame, and then others of us perhaps have, who have come through these doors with a smile today, but really that smile is hiding a bit of sorrow and, and shame within us. We feel like we're enclosed in a house of shame, and we're looking for a way out, and we just don't know quite how to get out. Again, shame thrives in secrecy, and secrecy is often an avenue that we use to conceal our sins. I mean, think about how God created us. God created us out of his love and out of his goodness. And right from the very beginning in in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27, it says that he created us as his eternal image bearers. He created us with the ability to walk with him, to relate with him, to rule and to reign with, with him. But instead of choosing to do his will, we went our own way. We think that our way of thinking will bring about greater happiness, greater satisfaction, greater pleasure. And if we can be honest with ourselves, at the heart of all of these decisions is the fact that we think we know better than him. That our ways, that our ways are better than his. So we walk away from true goodness, away from his love, away from his holiness, and into a life of futility, into a life of true meaninglessness, and ultimately into darkness. And this movement away from God's rule is, of course, what we call sin. And sin is the fruit of death. Now, from the very beginning of humanity until now, with everyone in the 21st century sitting in these seats, we are in desperate need of mercy. And for us who have come out of these seasons of shame, we can all probably point to uh, the receiving, receiving mercy as a key remedy for how we were able to overcome it. The Christian contemporary theologian Miller Erickson described it like this. He said, God's mercy is his tender-hearted, loving compassion for his people. It's his tenderness of heart toward the needy. And me and you all, we, we are the needy. We need his compassion. We need his forgiveness because we have transgressed, transgressed his divine law. And often those transgressions leave us in an utter state of shame. We all desperately need his mercy. And perhaps some of us desperately need it at this very moment. Now, if you're curious about the story or believe the story of Scripture to be true, then the first question we need to ask ourselves is, is the God of Scripture, is he in fact a giver, a giver of mercy? And let me tell you, the Bible is literally brimming with the answer to this question. I mean, right after we, right following the, uh, Genesis chapter 3, over and over we have multitudes of examples of where God is lavishing people with mercy. Early on we find that when God rescued the Israelites from Egyptian slavery, they get to Mount Sinai. And there he, go, he uh, goes into a covenant relationship with the Israelites. Now, I want to stop there for a second, and I want to ask all of you to put yourselves in the shoes of Moses. Again, they had just, Moses is the leader. He uh, escorts them uh, from the captivity of the Egyptians. They enter into this covenant with God. 
Now he's at Mount Sinai. He tells them, hold on, I'll be right back. So he goes up the mountain. He gets the Ten Commandments from God. He comes back down, and what does Moses see in front of him? He sees the Israelites have taken the gold and constructed and constructed an, uh, an idol, an Egyptian idol. He looks out among his people that God just saved, and he sees debauchery of all kinds that you could possibly imagine. And Moses understandably sees this. He's saddened. He's frustrated. He's angry. So he takes the Ten Commandments and smashes them on the ground. And what does God say? Does God say, Moses, how dare you take those Ten Commandments that I just gave you and throw them down because you're angry? Or does he look at the Israelite people and say, how ungrateful How selfish of you. I rescued you from that captivity. I brought you out of slavery. And this is how you repay me? You repay repay me by constructing an idol to the very people who oppressed you? No. That's not what God said. He passed before Moses and proclaimed this in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And later we find, as Jesus is is speaking at the Sermon on the Mount, and he's given the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 7, he says, blessed, blessed are the merciful for those of you who live lives and where you see others and you try to uh, bestow mercy on them. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Or how about the words of Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1? He says, and you were dead, dead in the trespasses and sin, but God, being rich, rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. So I don't know about you, but this verse gets me excited. Because maybe you're farther along in your spiritual journey than I am, but I can distinctly remember a time in my life when I was doing my own way, when I was following what my own will, what I was doing what made me happy, what I thought brought me fulfillment instead of doing his way. But all the while, while I was living in futility, God was calling me to be a follower of his. Maybe your story is similar. My friends, God, God is the great giver of mercy. So if God is the great giver of mercy, then the appropriate question for us to ask is, how do we, or perhaps how do I, receive his mercy? Now, that's undoubtedly a question that King David would have been asking after uh, the terrible events that Jacob took us through last year, uh, last week, excuse me, in 2 Samuel. And we're in the second week of our series entitled Confessions, Erasing Shame and Experiencing Renewal. And today we'll be exploring the first two verses of probably the most well-known chapter in the Bible dealing with confession, and that's Psalm 51. Now, let me remind you of what David said of the king of whom the, uh, of what the Lord said. In Acts chapter 13, verse 22, he says, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. 
And it was David who also wrote in, in uh, Psalm chapter 40, verses 8, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So David is saying, I love to do your will. I enjoy it. I delight in it. It's not that I'm just following it. It's not that I'm just checking off the check boxes, but your law is in my very heart. This is the same guy who on a record-breaking pace (laughs) broke five commandments, half of the commandments in just one chapter, 2 Samuel. You shall not covet. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not bear false witness. These are all commandments that David broke. And yet God said, you are a man after my own heart. What does that truth mean for us today? And this is why the heading for the psalm reads to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now, let me remind you, David abused his power and his position in raping Bathsheba. And let me be very clear there, because I've heard some theologians and some other people talk about, well, maybe Bathsheba liked him or whatever. No, no. Let's, be, let's not sugarcoat this. David abused her by using his power and position to take advantage of her, and he raped her. David then brings her husband, Uriah, from the battlefield to try to cover it up, to have, her, to have him to be with Bathsheba. But Uriah, Uriah is a man of honor, and he says no. I'm supposed to be out there with my brothers, and no no matter how much I love my wife, I cannot do that because I am a man of honor. So, of course, David has to think of something else to do. And again, he abuses his power and his position by then ordering that when they go back to battle, that when they're in battle, all of his fellow, all of Uriah's fellow soldiers should step back from where he's at, and the enemy would overwhelm Uriah, and ultimately Uriah would be murdered. This is all that David concocted. This is a man that God would eventually say is a man after my own heart. Now suppose you heard this story today. Suppose you were listening to the radio, watching the news. Would the first thing that you would say is, oh, will they get mercy? They deserve mercy? No. We'd be asking for justice, right? Now, don't get me wrong. God is indeed a God of justice. He wouldn't be all holy if he wasn't. But he is also a God of immense and intense mercy. And he desires to lavish every one of you in here and within the sound of my voice, all of us, with that mercy. So the question that we have to ask is, if someone like him can receive mercy, how? How do we also receive God's mercy? And it's two ways in which we do that. The first way we do it is by appealing to the character of God. In Psalm chapter 51, verses 1, it says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. See, David doesn't appeal to all the good things that he's done. He doesn't talk about his faith as a child. He doesn't talk about his commitment as a shepherd. He doesn't talk about how his faith in God helped him to overcome the giant Goliath or how his, the mercy that he showed to Saul when he had the opportunity to kill Saul when Saul was actually trying to kill him. Or how about the passion of his worship that ended up embarrassing 
his wife, or the countless times he put his life on the line for the sake, the sake of God's people. He knows that none of these things, none of these things will change the balance of the iniquities that he partook in. David had despised the word of God and counted God's wisdom as worthless. He had broken his covenant with the Lord, with his wife, and to his nation. Nothing could remotely justify any, any of his actions. See, David couldn't trust his own fickle, fragile, and failed character. But instead, instead, he appealed to the faultless, fruitful, and unfailing character of God. A God of intense and immense mercy. You see, confession, confession begins with a proper understanding of who God is and who we are in light, in light of who he is. That's why we can say, have mercy. Have mercy, O God. Why? Because of your steadfast love, because of your immeasurable mercy, because of who you are, not because of who I am. This is consistent with your character, God. So let me appeal to that. And that's why the psalmist said in Psalm, Psalm chapter 116, verses 1 and 2, I, the Lord, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice. He's heard my voice and my pleas for mercy because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. Now, the word for steadfast love is said, and it's a word that's kind of hard to translate in our, our modern vernacular because it brings together all of these different ideas of love, of generosity, of commitment, and it has to do with God's promise-keeping loyalty. It's like when Ruth's uh, husband died along with his brother and his father. And in those days in particular, in a very patriarchal society, women were really financially dependent on their husbands. So when their husband died, they would often be left in a very desolate manner. And so she was by herself in many ways. And the only person that was left was Naomi, her mother-in-law. Naomi begged her. She said, Ruth, go back to your family. In fact, she explicitly says, start over. Leave this chapter of sorrow behind you. But Ruth, Ruth, like Uriah, is a person or a woman of intense honor. She would not abandon Naomi. She stayed to be with her. And oftentimes, you know, as believers of Christ, when we act in accordance with what it means to be a disciple of his, with what it means to be an ambassador of his, others see us and somehow desire. That's what it says in the Old Testament, that they would see that and desire him. And so as, all, as, as people would see Ruth, care for Naomi, they called this an act of hesed. And this type of love doesn't depend on the faithfulness of the person receiving it. It's completely based on the character of the person who's giving it. It's just part of who Ruth was. It's not something given when the other party keeps their end of the deal. It's given freely because it connects to the faithfulness of the promise maker. And it's that type of loyal love that we find in wedding vows. And it's that type of love that we find in the God of Scripture and the type of love that God has for his own. I mean, think about when the Israelites were on their way back to the promised land. They would send 
a couple of spies to the land of Canaan. And they came back with, with two reports. Or actually one report looking at it two different ways. The good side of that report was that they said, hey, this land is wonderful. We can occupy it. It's beautiful. But the bad side of the report was that they were unsure of how they would remove the people, the Canaanites, who were currently occupying that land. And as a result, the people would rebel against their leader, Moses. Poor Moses. He gets the short end of the stick (laughs) all the time. And so they would attempt to stone him. Now imagine this again. I I want to put you back in the shoes of Moses. They're literally stoning him. He's done all he can to take them through the wilderness, out of the captivity of the Egyptians, all of these things, and they try to stone him. And what does Moses do? He pleads to God to forgive the people for their lack of faith and their rebellion. He says in Numbers chapter 14, verses 19, please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your, again, he's appealing to God's character, your steadfast love, just as you, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. In other words, don't forgive them because they did anything to deserve it. Forgive them because, Lord, of who you are. Have mercy on them. Psalm chapter 136 starts like this. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And over two dozen times, it says, his has said is forever. His has said is forever. His has said is forever. When we confess our sin to God, we're not suggesting that we deserve his mercy. Instead, we are admitting that while our character waffles between being faithful and faithless, his character remains fully committed to demonstrating his has said. Next, David appeals to God's abundant mercy. And abundant mercy can be translated as the greatness, the greatness of his compassion. I love how it's described in the song, His Mercy is More. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And this is how the psalmist describes it in Psalm 103 verses 8, or verses 8 through 12. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens, I love the poetic language here, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove, he remove our transgressions from us. What sin, what sin is greater than the Lord's mercy? What failure of ours is bigger than who he is? You know, I was reading this quote from Francis Chan's book, Crazy Love, and um, it, 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 really, it really stuck out to me. I read it probably, I don't know, 12, 15 years ago or so, and it's, it still really, still really uh, stays with me. He said, worry implies that we don't quite trust God is big enough, powerful enough, or loving enough to take care of what's happening in our lives. Stress, 
Stress says the things we are involved in are important enough to merit our impatience, our lack of grace toward others, or our tight grip of control. Both worry and stress reek of arrogance. There's often an arrogance about me. I dare to say there's often an arrogance about us, where we think that God is too busy, that our problems are too big or too small for him to care about and for him to take care of. Are we so arrogant to think that our transgressions are beyond the ability of of God to blot out, that our sin is unlike anything, anything that he has ever seen? Let's be honest. We often come to the giver in one of two ways. We come saying, hey, I don't really need your forgiveness. I'm okay. I'm good. My life is good. 401k is good. Family's all right. I don't need your mercy right now. I'm okay. And then some of us, some of us actually come to him knowing that we are in desperate need of his mercy perpetually. And so we, we, we cry out, have mercy, oh God, have mercy. Yes, things are going good, or maybe things are going bad. Either way, I know that I'm a sinner, and I need you, and I love you, Lord. So let me ask you, which picture are you? Which picture are you? Are you the picture right now that's saying that you don't really need his mercy? Or you know, do you know that you're in desperate need of his mercy perpetually? So how do we receive God's mercy? The first way, again, is by appealing to his character. And the second way is by appealing to the cleansing power, the cleansing power of God. In Psalm chapter 51, verses 2, we read, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. See, David is pleading with God, have mercy, blot out, make clean. He's introducing language about cleansing that will run throughout this entire, entire song. And these these three verb phrases are particularly interesting if you look further into their meaning. Blot out implies a comparison of human records being erased. Wash away compares forgiveness with the washing of clothes. To make clean or to cleanse likely refers back to the Old Testament law and one being purified for temple participation. But David is making it very clear to God that he understands just how desperately he needs to be cleansed. His desperation to acknowledge his wrongs and receive mercy, we find here, is on full, full display. But what does he need cleansing from? He uses another three words or phrases to describe his moral failings. My transgressions, which means to go against or rebel. My iniquity or guilt which means to bend or to twist. My sin, which means to miss a mark or to miss a goal. He's using every expression he could possibly conjure up to just express the inexcusable nature of his immorality to God. He knows he's defiled. He knows he's stained. He knows that he's ultimately marked for death because of his sin. So he uses this picture of ceremonial cleansing as as a way of saying, God, Take away, take away what is filthy, make it pure, make me ready for worship. David acknowledges that he is not prepared to have any contact at all with a perfectly holy and righteous God. He knows that his soul is in need of a ritual bath 
to remove all the dirt. See, David knows that he's as powerless to remove the sin by himself from himself as a blind man is to imbuing himself with sight. Think about when Jesus was leaving Jericho in Mark chapter 10 with his disciples. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting on the side of the road. Listen to the story. In Mark chapter 10, verses 47, it says, And when he, Bartimaeus, heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy, have mercy on me. Now that phrase, son of David, is interesting because this would become increasingly compatible with one who uh, was seen as the coming Messiah. And Bartimaeus calls out to the Messiah, begging, begging for mercy. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Show me compassion. I can't help myself, but I know that you are the one who can indeed help me. And we continue to read. And many rebuked him, telling him, shh, be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. You see, some of us know that we need God, but instead we're too concerned with what somebody thinks about us. We're too concerned with how we might look to someone or how we might sound to someone instead of thinking about what God thinks about us and what we actually need to do. But Bartimaeus, even though they told him to shush, he says, he cries out all the more, the text says, Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately, immediately, he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. The promise of the gospel is that your faith in him will make you well. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he is the savior of the world and the Lord over your life, because it's easy to have God, to have Jesus as our savior, but it's harder and more convenient to have him actually be the Lord, the Lord over our lives. But if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and that his resurrection demonstrates his power over sin and death, then you, my friends, you, you will indeed be saved. But to receive God's mercy, we have to first recognize that sin has stained us. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, put it like this. He said, we all have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. In other words, he's saying that no matter what good things we have done, because sometimes we think that there's this, this scale. If I've done all these great things and I just messed up once, well, God will forgive me. I'm okay. But no, that's not how God sees it. None of our righteous deeds. We should do righteous deeds because it's the right thing to do. We should do righteous de- deeds because that's what it means, as Paul said, to be an ambassador, an ambassador of Christ, to represent him to everyone. But our righteous deeds don't remove the stain of sin upon us. Listen to the Apostle John describe this good news in 1 John chapter 1, verses 7. He said, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, 
we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth, the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is the great giver of mercy. He desires to lavish all of us with his mercy and his grace. But how do we receive it? We receive it by appealing to the character of God. We receive it by appealing to the cleansing power of God. So whether, whether the Spirit is bringing out small things from your closet or big secrets from your attic, God desires to give you mercy. If only, if only you'd come to him. If only you'd confess it. Maybe your sin is a hard heart, an unforgiving spirit, a root of bitterness, a secret lust, a pattern of greed, apathy, anger, selfishness, jealousy, a lack of passion for the things that matters to God. No matter what it is, he desires to bring mercy to you. And when we do it, he will unleash, unleash his healing powers on you. I came across this prayer of confession the other day. I'm going to ask you in a second to, to bow your heads, but I understand it can be hard. It can be hard for us to confess. It can be hard for us to confess within ourselves, to be honest with ourselves. It can, it can be hard for us to confess to other brothers and sisters. But let's start today. Let's start today by doing it together. So close your eyes, please, and pray for me. And pray, pray with me in your minds and in your hearts. You asked for my hands that you might use them for your purpose. I gave them for a moment, then withdrew them for the work. The work was hard. You asked for my mouth to speak out, to speak out against injustice. I gave you a whisper that I might not be accused. You asked for my eyes to see the pain of poverty. I closed them for I did not want to see. You asked for my life that you might work through me. I gave a small part that I might not get too involved. Lord, precious Lord, forgive my calculated efforts to serve you only when it's convenient for me to do so, only in those places where it's safe for me to do so, only with those who make it easy for me to do so. Father, forgive me. Forgive me. Forgive me. Renew me. Send me out as a usable instrument that I might take seriously the meaning of your cross. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.